Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Again, we're going to see some, some heinous things that are going on in the Corinthian church. And uh, by extension, uh, hopefully the Lord will give us some insight and some wisdom of how to handle sin in our day as well. Because it's no, it's no secret, is it, that there is sin in the church. And uh, we need, we definitely need to be able to handle it in the way that the Lord Jesus would have us handle sin. Well, I'll never forget the time I heard this. My good friend Lou and I were preparing for the military chaplaincy. We were at a church on one night, and he had an opportunity to deliver the evening message. And he began his message this way. The church has become too much like the world, and we are trying to make the world like the church. In other words, the church had become too worldly and the world too churchy. And this, to a large degree, is what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. This is a short, powerful passage that packs a lot of punch. It is on the heels of Paul asking the question and basically giving the Corinthian Christians a choice. When he visits them, will they, do they want him to come to them with, a, with love and gentleness or with a rod of correction? Remember how he wanted to visit them to find out who the arrogant ones were who were speaking against the authority that God gave Paul as an apostle. He reminded the Corinthians that the kingdom of God comes in power, especially the supernatural power to change lives, even in the realm of their morality. So in this chapter, I find something strange. You know, in the first four chapters of this letter, Paul chided them over and over again about their lack of unity. And he tells them in no uncertain terms to stop boasting in their spiritual leaders. The one who they should be boasting in is the one who loved them enough to save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this chapter, Paul finds that he has to chide them, this time for their unity with the world. As we will see, the Corinthian Christians were seemingly proud of their moral progressivism. We would call it gross immorality. They were unified over something they should have divorced themselves from when they began to follow Jesus. Now, this gross immorality was, between an, inc- was an incestual relationship between, quote, a man and his father's wife. Now, this sin is bad enough even in our day. Would you agree with that? Now, I don't know about you, but I have never heard anyone engage in this kind of behavior. But what about you? But in first century culture, it was really bad, even among pagans. It was one of those unwritten rules that no one even talked about. And eventually, it was actually outlawed. So we're going to look at the situation in our passage today and then apply it to our day. Now, there were those in the church who seemed to be proud of their moral progressivism, even in our day. And on the other hand, there are those who seem to want to fix the world by telling the pagans to straighten up and fly right. As we will see, neither way is proper for the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to guard against worldliness in the church and at the same time avoid trying to make the world churchy. Now, we know the issue, so let's explore 
the backstory. This incident obviously involves a man and his father's wife, and most likely his stepmother. Either way, this was a real, I call it a real ick factor. So who were these people and why in the world would they engage in behavior like this? Now, those who study the Scripture for a living have come to some conclusions about these people. The woman definitely was not a Christian, not a member of the Corinthian community. Because in verse 12, Paul says that the church has no responsibility to judge those outside the church. So he left her alone. And as we know, when non-Christians sin, what are they doing? They're acting normal. And so he did not deal with her. Now, she may have, she may have been a widow, perhaps with uh, a large dowry. She may have been rich. Or she may have been a prostitute. And from the scholars who have made comments about her, this is pretty much what they came up with. Now, these are important points to keep in mind as we talk about the guy and what he was facing. So, who was the guy? Unlike her, he was connected with the church community. And these two had an ongoing sexual relationship. And quite possibly, he was married to the woman. This man may have been a man of of means and influence, either in the, in the city of Corinth or in the church, or even both. He might have been one of those noble, powerful people that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, the Scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? In other words, sin knows no bounds, does it? And so, let's try to put together a piece or two What's going on here? Now, one scenario is, as I mentioned, stepmom may have been a widow with a large dowry. Her son may have married her to keep the dowry in the family. And so it might have been uh, motivated with, uh, by a financial means. Or the relationship could have been one of the guy enjoying a privileged status in the pagan community or in the church. Maybe being a man of wealth and influence, it may be that he continued the relationship because I can. Perhaps he had recently understood the gospel, how that Christ loved him and saved him by his grace. And because of God's grace, he may have felt like this. I have true freedom now. And since Christ has forgiven me of all of my sins, I can do what I want. Which is, of course, what Paul did not teach in the 18 months he was there establishing the church. So whether it was financial or influential or a total misunderstanding of his responsibility as a Christian, this man continued a relationship, a sexual one, with his grandmother, or with his stepmother, I should say, and perhaps even married her. And as I said, this is a real ick factor. Well, having said that the background of this sordid tale, and it had to be true For how can you make this stuff up? We're going to see how serious this was in Paul's mind to have the church in Corinth take care of these things. We're going to look at the indictment in verses 1 and 2. We're going to see Paul's procedure to remedy the situation in verses 3 to 5. His reminder of who the Corinthians were in verses 6 to 8. And finally, a re-education of how the Corinthians were to relate to outsiders, as he calls them. In verses 9 to 13. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and read Paul's indictment 
against the Corinthians and how it was ruining the church's ministry or witness to the community. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to have mourned? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, the indictment is straightforward. Sexual immorality of the most vile kind, the kind that pagans did not do. See, incestual relationships like this were just not done in Corinth, which says a lot because to Corinthianize was another way of saying sexual immorality. Notice something else. Paul caught wind of it. He said it was reported among you, which seems to say that it was not exactly an in-house secret. It was out in the open. And Paul was livid. Can't you just hear between the lines how upset he was? This was no way for God's people to behave. And to make matters worse, as if things could get any worse, it was the way that the church was totally okay with this. As I mentioned, whether there was a financial motivation or that the man had influence and power or even something else entirely, the church boasted about this. Remember how Paul was upset that the Corinthians boasted in spiritual leaders, threatening the disunity of the fellowship. Now they were at it again, only this time they were boasting in the sin of this relationship of the most vile kind. It was as though the Corinthian church was in competition with the world to see which one could be more wicked. And so here Paul takes in the task. Through his righteous anger, he makes two statements. First, instead of boasting, their eyes should have been filled with tears, mourning over this sin. Second, they should have removed this man from among them immediately, if not sooner. And so for the sake of several serious issues, Paul urges the Corinthian church to take action. No discussion, no debating. And for the sake of the church's witness to the pagan community, Corinthians take action because of who they were and should have shown their new nature by mourning rather than boasting in this behavior. Corinthians take action. And for the sake of this man who called himself a Christian, in order to show him the seriousness of this sin, Corinthians take action. And having looked at this indictment, now let's look at the remedy that Paul directs, that of running this guy out of the assembly. In other words, exercise church discipline. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, Paul says. And as if, in, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we can spend an entire message on just these verses, but let me just hit the highlights. Let's start with what the Lord Jesus said regarding sin in the church and what to do about it. And so Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is the passage that Jesus talks about concerning sin and how to handle this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whoever you bind, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And as an aside, I find it interesting that in verse 20, we often understand that Jesus is telling us that he is with us in small groups, you know, two or three, like we are today. But what is he actually saying here? Now, it's true that he is with us, two or three gathered together. That's true. But what is he saying right here? He is present in the church discipline process. In other words, his authority is present as church leaders exercise church discipline. That's what he's saying here. That's the thrust of this passage. But notice, though, that church discipline needs to be exercised over actual sin. Blatant violations of Scripture, which is the standard that we all must live under. We can have differences of opinions about things and even have heated discussions about things. You ever have one of those over Scripture? (laughs) But when sin is committed, that's when it must be dealt with. And it should be handled first one-to-one. Now, that's a good management principle, isn't it? It needs to be resolved at the lowest level. And only when it can't be resolved is when things are to be elevated. And so, one-to-one, and if things are not resolved... Then bring along one or two others. Why is that? So that everything will be established by two or three witnesses. If sin is committed, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to not stop until it is resolved. In other words, sanctified peer pressure needs to be placed on the sinning party. And if things don't get resolved at that level, it goes before the entire church. And if that level of peer pressure does not result in resolution... Then show the individual the door, treating that person like a Gentile in a tax collector. We cut off fellowship from the sinning party. Now, it may sound harsh, judgmental, but it's supposed to be. See, sin is terrible. Sin hurts. Sin destroys everything it touches. And this is what Paul and Jesus mandated for, dealing with sin. But notice the presence of the two witnesses in verse 4. It's the spirit of Paul and the power of the Lord Jesus in the midst of the church assembled to do this solemn business. But what business is this? Handing this person over to Satan. Now that seems unthinkable in our 21st century American Christian's ears. But if we understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God, then 1 Corinthians 5, 5 carries with it just as much truth and just as much authority as John three sixteen does. So let's not dodge it, but let's embrace it. So what to make of this? Now, it makes sense when we consider the mindset of the early church. Put simply, inside the church, 
there was light. Safety. Protection from the evil one. Life and mercy and so many other things. And we will see that in Paul's mind, there was a Grand Canyon's worth of division between those inside and those outside the church. See, Paul calls the world the domain of darkness in Colossians 1.13. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. And so when Paul tells the Corinthians to hand this man over to Satan, what he means is that the leadership should show him the door out of the light and into the darkness where Satan now rules. The place where Satan steals and kills and destroys people. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says what? I've come that they might have life. and might have it more abundantly. But notice what Paul hopes to have happen by handing this man over to Satan, that his flesh may be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, if you read carefully and if you're like me, you would see this is kind of problematic as well. Because for the church to actually hope that this man's flesh be destroyed? Again, this sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Well, the possible answer can be found in what we said earlier. Remember I said that the scholars, some of the scholars suggested that his stepmom could have been a prostitute. And it could work like this. As the church leadership releases this guy into the darkness... It's as if they're asking the Lord to take his hand of protection off of that person so that he will suffer the consequences of his sin in a much deeper way than otherwise. See, if stepmom was a prostitute, how many partners would she have? And what would be the chances that she would contract a sexually transmitted disease? But before we go any further, let me make this comment. This is not, as I see it, to be used as a blanket punishment, as it were, for people who have been dismissed from the fellowship of the church through church discipline. Paul made this specific. He said, this man. Now, he could have made things much more broad, but he made it very narrow. And with that said, let's go on. See, if stepmom was a prostitute and, they, and, and say the guy contracted an STD, then as his flesh was being destroyed, perhaps he would realize something was dreadfully wrong between him and his relationship with the Lord. And maybe that God was punishing him because of it. And perhaps there would be that this guy would repent and either come back to the Lord or come to the Lord initially in salvation. Either way, perhaps the destruction of his flesh would bring him to repentance and salvation. In other words, the man would live with the consequences in this life the destruction of the flesh. But it is that very lifestyle that would bring him to repentance. But how often does God work in this way? Is this just kind of an anomaly? I think God does work this way, and quite often, really. See, Solomon writes in Proverbs 14, 14, that the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And what I've done, I've turned that statement into a prayer. That the ones that I love who are living in blatant sin will become filled with the fruit of their ways. They will become sick of their sin. And when they do, that the Lord will mercifully bring his conviction to bear upon their soul, and then the miracle of salvation will happen. 
See, we can praise the Lord that nothing is ever wasted, even when those that we love sin grievously. Of course, that does not mean that everybody is going to be saved. I would love that to happen, wouldn't you? But it does give at least me the motivation to pray more diligently for those who I love, who have gone away and are now living in sin. So we've seen Paul's indictment and remedy about this uh, incestual relationship of this man with his stepmother in the first five verses. Now, in verses 6 to 8, Paul reminds the Corinthians who they are and the reason why they need to exercise church discipline and run the unrepentant one out of the church. Your boasting, Corinthians, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, Paul gives him two points to ponder as he pointedly tells them to follow through with what they need to do. First, he says that what they're to stop doing. He says, you're boasting about the lifestyle of this man and his stepmom is not good. You should not be doing that. And later on in his writing ministry, Paul would even be more specific about followers of Jesus living a holy life. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 3. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Not even a hint of this, Corinthians. Now, having told the Corinthians, what to stop doing, now Paul tells the Corinthians what to do. And it begins with a proper orientation. We're very familiar with how devastating viruses can be, aren't we? Very familiar now. According to many, the coronavirus has literally brought the entire planet to its knees. Multiplied thousands have contracted it, and over 11,000 have died having been diagnosed with it. To make a more complete picture, though, In the U.S. alone, in just this present flu season, 36 million people have contracted the flu. And over 22,000 have died um, after having been diagnosed with it. And so I think we can say that a virus is a pretty serious thing. So what we need to do concerning sin, we need to consider sin as a virus of the soul. See, Paul did. He described this as leaven, introducing a fermentation process that makes bread rise. And you guys who know how to bake bread, you know what I'm talking about. And those of us who eat it, we know what you're talking about too. See, given enough time in bread dough, what happens when yeast is there? Delicious bread, right? Nothing like fresh hot bread out of the oven. I love it with butter and honey and all that. It's great stuff. And though yeast in fresh bread is a great thing, leaven in the soul is a bad thing. And given enough time, without stopping it, unchecked leaven in just one soul will produce deadly results in the life of a local church. This is Christ's body we're talking about. Sin left unchecked will make the whole body sick. So what to do? Apply social Distancing. 
What are we doing here? We're spread out. We're applying social distancing concerning the virus. But what Paul says here concerning the, the leaven of the soul, apply social distancing between themselves and the sinning person. Paul told the Corinthians in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Pretty straightforward here. Using bread dough analogy, Paul in essence said, if you want good flatbread, do not allow any leaven in the recipe. Get rid of the leaven, Paul said. But we might be thinking, to get rid of the unrepentant sinner is so harsh. Since there's no one righteous, who are we to judge, we go on to say. And besides, this person might repent by being around us. You know, that makes sense. And how many people have done that? How many churches have adopted this? But there's one primary reason why Paul says what he says about this, about applying social distancing to this man. He says this, you are changed people. That's the issue. And that is what you need to be doing. Live as though you're changed people. Because the rest of verse 7 reads this way. You really are unleavened. There is no, by, by nature, in the body of Christ, no sin, no poisoning of the soul, no leavening of the soul here. So what was Paul doing? He was reminding the Christians there that they were indeed Christians. They were little Christs. This was not a friendly nickname when it was first coined. See, in the first century, in the town called Antioch, non-Christians gave that nickname to the Christians. And it was a term of derision. It was a term like, you little Christ. That's how they viewed the Christians. Because they acted so much like Christ, they called them Christians. And Paul reminded them of the changes that the Lord made in their lives, both individually and in the church. Remember what the word church means. Ecclesia, it is called out. When a person gets saved, he is called out of the world and he's called into the fellowship of God through Christ. Now, this fellowship is characterized by holiness, especially holiness in the moral realm. See, we are to be separated unto him by his grace. First John tells us in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7 of First John, he says, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what we're not talking about, though, we're not talking about, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but we are talking about our lives being more and more conformed to the holiness of God here. And we are to walk in fellowship, walk in the light. Now, this man who lived in unrepentant sin claimed to have fellowship with God but he deliberately lived as though he did not. Now, we all mess up, don't we? But this man deliberately decided to live against the ways of God. The Corinthian Christians need a reminding as to who they were. And because they were holy, they needed to create some social distancing from this man who insisted to live in the ways that even the pagans thought were disgusting. What they needed to understand, that for the sake of the purity of Christ's body, the church in Corinth, they needed to cleanse the temple, so to speak, so that they could be who God has made them to be, unleavened, without yeast, not puffed up, just good old-fashioned flatbread. And then Paul goes on and reminds the Corinthians about the sacrifice of Christ. 
It cost Christ his life to bring an unleavened reality to them. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? It always comes back to him. See, really, here's the heart of the issue. Not only when we're dealing with sin in our own lives, but also, and just as importantly, in sin in somebody else's life. See, Paul already laid out the attitude that they needed to have over the sin of this unrepentant man. They needed to mourn over this sin. And the mourning comes out of a broken heart over sin, remembering that it was sin, even the sin of incest, that put Jesus on the cross. But with that said, notice how well, as well how Paul referred to the Corinthians. It was who God declared them to be. He said that they had no leaven. But with this man in an unrepentant, sinful relationship, what was happening to the Corinthians? They were becoming leavened. They were beginning to get puffed up. And spiritually speaking, they were beginning to be characterized as those who were living in malice and evil. And when the leaven becomes noticeable, catastrophic things begin to happen, such as what happened in a college classroom a few years back. Dr. Stephen L. Anderson, a professor in Ontario, Canada, had what he called a moment of startling clarity when he was teaching a a section on ethics in his senior philosophy class. He needed an, an attention getter, as he called it something to shock his students and force them to take an ethical stand. He hoped that this would form a baseline from which they could evaluate other ethical decisions. After all, this was an ethics class. Here's how he explained what happened next. I decided to open by simply displaying, without comment, a photo of Bibi Ashia. Ashia was the Afghani teenager who was forced into an abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter who abused her and kept her with his animals. When she attempted to flee, her family caught her, hacked off her nose and ears, and left her for dead in the mountains. She was saved by a nearby American hospital. He says, I felt quite sure that my students, seeing the suffering of this poor girl of their own age, would have a clear ethical reaction. The picture is horrific. As she has beautiful eyes, stare hauntingly back at you above the mangled hole that was once her nose. Some of my students could not even raise their eyes to look at it. I could see that they were experiencing deep emotions. But I was not prepared for their reaction. I had expected strong aversion, but that's not what I got, he said. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timorously, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. And they said, well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said, well, it's just wrong to judge any other culture. And I wondered, how can kids who've been so thoroughly based in the language of minority rights, be so numb to a clear moral offense? No matter how I prodded, they did not leave their non-judgmental position. I left that class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that that for some students, clearly not all, the lesson of character education initiatives is acceptance of all things at all costs. 
while we may hope some are capable of bridging the gap between principal morality and this ethically vacuous relativism, it is evident that a good many are not. For them, the overriding message is never judge, never criticize, never take a position. These students were unable to stand for righteousness. They were afflicted with an inability to distinguish good from evil. And what Paul was getting across here was that malice and evil has a way of permeating the entire church body to its shame and ineffectiveness as a witness to the unbelievers around them. But God's people can celebrate Jesus as our Passover lamb. We are freed from our sins. And that is a reason we're celebrating. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Christ put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And so now we can live in perpetual celebration. And we can demonstrate this by living our lives in sincerity and in truth. So Paul's indictment, his remedy, his reminder of who God created the Corinthians to be. And now let's look at Paul's re-education to them of a gross misunderstanding of how they were to interact with the pagan world around them. And this is found in verses 9 to 13. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians before this one, instructing them on how to live a holy life and to do that in front of non-Christians in Corinth. And in spite of the apostles' clear teaching about this, apparently they got confused. Let's look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, what they got out of that instruction was they were to live in isolation of all sinners. It was as though the Corinthians believed that Paul was telling them that they could only hang around people who were cleaned up, that they could not touch the world lest the world would contaminate them. Now, that's a doctrine in some places, isn't it? For fear of being stained by the world in its ways, it is believed by many that Christians cannot interact with sinners. And so one of two things often emerge. First, Christians sometimes are on a mission to clean up the world, to help the non-Christian to be better, like confronting them about their language. You ever heard that? You ever do that? Or helping them in their better lifestyle choices, like, like the modern version of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not that these things are bad as far as they go. I mean, for a person to stop abusing alcohol and other drugs is a good thing. Would you agree? Or to have somebody strike salty language from their vocabulary, that's a good thing as well. But without the power to change what has already been done to produce what's happened in in that person's life, without that power, all they produce is cleaned up sinners. No change in their heart. They still have a heart of stone. And they're still living in rebellion against God. Now, Paul was not concerned about God's people contracting a virus of the soul when it's carried by sinners. What he was concerned about was sinners dying without a cure for their sin. And that's the cure that we as Christians have. See, Paul's instruction was for Christians to spread the gospel as he gave his life, as he himself gave his life to him and that Jesus commanded his disciples to be about. See, in 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this. He says, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. The truth is that we as Christians cannot avoid non-Christians, and neither would we want to. 
See, the cure for sin is in our lives as we carry the contagion of the gospel to them. It can only be transmitted to the terminally ill by those with the cure, by our contact with them. But in verse 11, Paul clarifies his stance. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunk or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So what was Paul saying? Have no contact with the one who claims to be a Christian but lives as though he or she is not. And what I'm talking about is deliberately that way. See, we're not to try to win this person back. We are to consider them out in the domain of darkness. We're not to consider them as someone who's merely out of fellowship with God. We are to let them go. That's what Paul says here. But we might object. That's so harsh. That's so judgmental. Why do we want to do this? So let's deal with this. Once again, if all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, then this statement is included as well. See, the raw truth is that Paul told the Corinthian Christians that they were to have no dealings with a person who claimed to be a Christian but was unrepentant and chose to live that way, not even to share a meal with him or with her. Again, what was he saying? Social distancing was the key. But why is that? Let's look at verse 12. And it is even seemingly more harsh than verse 11. Let's read this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to do what? To judge? When we do this, what are we doing? We are judging. That's what Paul tells us to do. This is our responsibility. We mourn over the sin, but we're to judge that sin. And that individual, if that person doesn't repent, we are to show them the door and have them go out into the darkness. See, Paul makes a definite distinction between Christians and non-Christians. He makes a distinction between insiders, those in the church, and outsiders, those outside the church. And Paul's instruction is to judge insiders. Well, how do we reconcile that with 21st century American Christianity? Simple answer is we don't. But that does not mean that we hate people. It does mean that we let them go. Obviously, we pray for them. Obviously, we witness to them, treating them like the outsiders that they are. We love them as we love all people, but we're not to treat a person as a Christian who claims to be by his lifestyle, a non-Christian. If he deliberately or she deliberately wants to live that way, we are not allowed to call them a Christian. We say, you are not a Christian, you need Jesus. And we're to be a witness to them. We are to love them. We're to pray for them. But we can't extend the right hand of fellowship to them. And in verse 13, we see the part God plays in the lives of all outsiders, all non-Christians. God judges them. See, we don't have the right or the responsibility to judge the outsiders. The solemn responsibility the Corinthians had and that we have by extension is to pronounce a mournful judgment on the insiders and cut ourselves off 
from the evil person, the one who claims to be an insider, but who deliberately lives as though he or she is an outsider. Do you see the difference? Does this make sense? Doesn't sound good, but does it make sense? But what do we often find ourselves doing? Just the opposite of what Paul told the Corinthians then and us in the 21st century. How often are we busy about judging non-Christians, getting them to clean up their act, while we give those who say they are Christians, who are living in unrepentant sin, a pass? And what's the result of that? Through our neglect of helping our brother or sister improve their personal holiness, we allow the church to become worldly. And through our usurping of God's prerogative of His judging the outsiders, we seek to make the world churchy. And the bottom line here is simply obeying what the Lord said through Paul, we are to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters, our true brothers and sisters, carefully and solemnly exercising church discipline. And this is an indispensable function of a disciple of Jesus. And incidentally, that is why church membership is important. It is only through church membership where the local church has authority to exercise church discipline. See, unless one is agreed to place himself or herself under the authority of spiritual leadership, in our case, it's me and also the cat, the church advisory team, there is no authority to lovingly call out an unrepentant person. And because that person is not under spiritual authority, he or she is under spiritual danger. Because along with spiritual authority comes spiritual protection. Those who are not under spiritual protection leave themselves open to the enemy's attacks. And the other side is true as well. A Christian does not have the authority or the responsibility to call it a non-Christian for what he or she is doing. Remember, a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. Why? Because a non-Christian. See, a Christian is got to be the person to give the witness, not to be the judge in the world. And see, the danger for the non-Christian is that when a well-meaning Christian does that, when they call them out, that often results in a non-Christian getting the wrong idea about salvation. See, if I tell a non-Christian to clean up their act, then they will think that it's not God's grace that he or she needs for salvation, but it's more works to clean up their act so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. See, if I only have enough good works, they would say, and how would they know that? It's because I have told them that they need to clean up their act. And so they think that that's what it takes to be acceptable before God. But as we know, it is by grace we are saved through faith, as in faith in Jesus. And it is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. In other words, it is not our job to churchify the world. It is our privilege to love the non-Christian, that they may become holy in Christ, and to lovingly help our brother or sister to become more holy in their walk with the Lord. Because when it's all said and done, what it's all about, God describes His Son as a bridegroom, and we as His church make up His bride. We And when He returns, what is He coming for? He's coming for a radiant bride, holy, and without spot or wrinkle. And Tim Keller tells the story of Dorothy Sayers, 
who wrote a series of detect- Sayers' Creation. Whimsy was an aristocratic detective from the 1930s who solved all kinds of crimes. She wrote a whole series of stories and, and novels about Lord Peter. And when about halfway through her Whimsy Detective series, a woman suddenly shows up in the novels. Sayers' new character is named Harriet Bain, a female mystery writer and one of the very first women to get through Oxford. Harriet and Peter fall in love. Until that point in the series, Whimsy was an unhappy, broken bachelor until Harriet Bain shows up and her love starts to heal his broken soul. Now, this is an interesting backstory because Dorothy Sayers, like her fictional creation, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Like Harriet Vane, Dorothy Sayers was a writer of mystery novels. Dorothy Sayers looked at her character, Lord Peter Whimsey, and saw that he needed someone to help him out. And who did she put in there? A detective novelist, a woman, and one of the first women to go through Oxford. In other words, Sayers put herself into her novels, in her stories. She looked into the world that she had created, and she fell in love with the chief character, Peter Whimsey, and she wrote herself into that story so she could heal him. And isn't this the great news? In a nutshell, God creates the world. We've turned away from him and die because of our sin. But God looks into this world, and he loves us, and he writes himself into his own story. Only he really writes himself in and he really puts himself in there in Jesus Christ. And he comes and he gives us life and he takes us to be his bride. And for the sake of our witness, may we as the bride and soldiers of Christ be about two things. To love righteousness and to fight against wickedness in the church. And may we have the endurance to give outsiders what they need to hear. The gospel while refraining from judging the outsiders. And may God help us to prevent the church from becoming worldly and stop trying to make the world churchy for the glory and honor of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came to save sinners. And each one of us, if we were honest, we would echo Paul's words and say, I'm the chief of sinners. Each one of us knows the depth of our sin. Well, maybe not. None of us really knows the the very bottom of what our heart is capable of. So, Lord, I thank you. We thank you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you came to do to save us. And Lord, when there is sin in the church, it is heinous. It causes you sorrow. It breaks your heart. And it ought to break our hearts. But Lord, we have in our world today people, many, many people, who are flaunting their sin, who are proud of it, and who are saying, we accept everybody, come on in. And Lord, we're now weak and we're compromised. But Lord Jesus, you're coming back for a bride that's radiant without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I pray, Lord, as your people, that you will help us, that you will help us to to gain a heart concerning sin over what is your heart 
Lord, may we hate sin in ourselves. May we hate sin in others, but not to deal with it self-righteously. Or may we mourn over it. And Lord, here at Grace United, I pray that you would help us to look out for one another. I pray that out of compassion and out of a a sense of, of danger as we watch one another, as we watch one another lovingly, as we look out for one another and take care of one another, Lord, that you'll help us as we see sin in our lives that we will lovingly point it out. But even before that, that we will, we will go before you, Lord, in mourning over our brothers and sisters who are living and who are sinning. So, Lord, I pray that you help us. Lord, you want us to clean out the leaven. And sometimes that means church discipline, which we have had the unfortunate um, experience of doing over the years. I pray, Father, that you'll help us, that you will lead us, that you will guide us. And again, Lord, that we will learn to hate what you hate and to love what you love. And we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise for what you are doing. Take this message, Lord. Seal it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.